1: and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation Virtually. We are so glad that you're able to join us for our webinar today. Safeguarding Asia's Most Vulnerable During COVID-19. This program came to my mind and was inspired in large part because of some memories that I have from September 2016 when I had the opportunity to visit um, Syrian refugees in informal tented settlements in Lebanon. When I was there, I actually got to meet a young girl. She's nine years old and her name was Doha and she had spent six of her nine years on this earth inside of that informal tented settlement where she didn't have access to schooling, where it was very difficult for her parents to provide for her and her other siblings, much less to have access to adequate health care and assistance. Doha and other boys and girls like her have come to my mind frequently Um, during this COVID-19 outbreak. And I've often wondered how refugees like the over 1 million displaced Burmese Rohingya in Bangladesh are faring during this time or how North Koreans and Chinese um, are living under authoritarian regimes where they might not have access to healthcare or information. And so that really inspired this program. And that's why I'm so excited to have all of you joining us here today. I'm really thrilled to have um, Dan Sullivan from Refugees International, to have Chung-Ming Kim um, from NK News, as well as Christina Olney. And um, before we kick off our program, I wanted to just highlight a couple of housekeeping items that are unique to this webinar format. First, the session is being recorded and will be emailed to you and posted on heritage.org within 48 hours you will want to keep your eye out for that email, not only because it will have the event so that you can rewatch it if you missed anything, but also because there will be links to heritage publications that lay out some of the steps the US government can take to alleviate suffering during COVID-19 in both Southeast Asia, as well as in China. The second housekeeping item is that all attendees are in listen only mode, but because this is a discussion, Um, we want you to be able to ask questions. So you'll see on the right-hand side of your screen, a Q&A box, um, and please be sure to identify yourself by name and organization. And towards the end of the program, after we've heard from our fantastic panelists, we will do our best to try and answer your various questions. So with that, I'd like to turn it over to Dan Sullivan from Refugees International. He is a senior advocate for human rights there, and he has a long history of working with both refugees as well as survivors of genocide, especially in his previous capacity at Save Darfur. Dan, this is not the first time that he has joined us on the heritage stage. We have enjoyed doing a lot of work together, especially in addressing the plight of Rohingya refugees who are who have faced genocide in the past. And so I'm very excited to have Dan here with us today. So with that, Dan, I'll go ahead and hand it over to you.
0: Great, thank you, Olivia. Um, Thank you to the Heritage Heritage Foundation and and to my fellow panelists. Um, Excited to have the chance to to speak about this important topic. Um, I just wanted to spend a few minutes to first talk about some of the findings that Refugees International has had um, globally on, uh, why forcibly displaced people are among the most vulnerable um, to COVID-19 and what that means, and then talk a little bit about my my personal experience over the years uh, traveling to uh, Rohingya camps and what it means specifically, uh, what some of those um, uh, some of those recommendations and, and the way things are playing out in the camps, um, and including uh, share with you a little bit, you know, having spoken to um, reached out to a few different Rohingya refugees uh, over the last few days, what they're telling me. Um, So first, um, you know, Refugees International has been around for 40 years and working all around the world where people have been forcibly displaced. And at the beginning of this uh, this crisis with uh, the spread of COVID-19, we put together a report looking at um, some of the common uh, challenges and recommendations. You know, there's um, specific uh, uh, aspects of each crisis. Um, But amongst the amongst 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 those, there are. Some uh, Some common challenges and some common things to to point to, so I'll just highlight three of those right now. One is that many of the people who are forcibly displaced are living in camps that are especially cramped um so obviously doing some of the social distancing and the recommendations we're hearing are are not even possible. And the second is that there are many underlying um, health conditions and and poor health infrastructure that um, that refugees displaced people are facing. And then third is uh, is an issue of access to information, of reliable information, um, and I'll talk a little bit more how that plays out in in Bangladesh specifically. Uh, but first, to speak more specifically about the Rohingya, I always like to start out by pointing out, um, you know, that it's it's important to remember where the the root causes and the ultimate solutions lie, and that's in Burma or Myanmar. Um, there's, you know. We at Refugees International last month, which was uh, Genocide Awareness and Prevention Month, um, put out a statement saying that clearly we see this as being genocide and we're calling upon the State Department to um, to designate this as genocide and to take the uh, requisite actions um, to address that. So that's where the root cause is. but. Uh, there's no, that's no excuse to say that um, you can accept policies in uh, places of refuge like Bangladesh um, that are unnecessarily making life more difficult for those refugees. Um, and so going through those, those three main kind of challenges, we talk about the the uh, cramped conditions. The camps in Bangladesh have uh, some 900,000 uh, refugees living in, in the largest refugee settlement in the world. Um, a population density four times that of, um, of uh, New York City. When people are looking at projections for how it might spread, they're talking about uh, comparisons with uh, like on cruise ships rather than in, in cities around the world. Um, so that's a, a major challenge. Uh, the second, the underlying health conditions. Um, you know, there's there've been spreads of other diseases. Um, the uh, the fact that um, the response to trying to prevent COVID nineteen and I'll be clear, there, there are no confirmed cases in the camps thankfully right now, uh, but people I speak to on the ground say it's really just a matter of time. And in order to prevent uh, the spread, there's been a, a sharp reduction of the access to the camps for humanitarian workers. So something like 80% less um, getting into the camps. And that's really concerning when we have, um, it's understandable in terms of preventing COVID, but it presents new challenges when we have the monsoon season coming up and um uh, you know and, and various of the, the regular challenges that had already been there are are extra strained. And then the third point on access to information. This is particularly acute in uh, the camps in Bangladesh because Bangladesh has uh restricted the um and limited access to internet and mobile um networks for refugees. So uh you know being able to uh share information about COVID-19 to uh, report when there are um cases or or um uh, you know, signs that it may be be be, uh, be spreading, uh, all that's been curtailed. Um, and then on top of that, you have uh, many rumors that are going around the camps. So things like, um, if you report to a health official that you are sick, you're gonna be put to death because they can't help you, um, or that uh, this only happens to bad Muslims, or things like that. So a lot of false information going around and uh, both the the internet mobile restrictions and restrictions on uh, Rohingya civil society have made those more difficult to, to tackle. Um, so one of the other things that, that is uh, particularly acute right now is there are hundreds of Rohingya who are stranded at sea. Um, so some have left Bangladesh trying to get to Malaysia. They were turned back. Um, some of those last month, some 400 were taken in to uh, allow ashore in Bangladesh, quarantined for a couple of weeks, and then, um, you know, so th- that was addressed. But now there's uh, hundreds who are are languishing at sea, um, and there's you know it brings me back to when I was interviewing people in Malaysia uh, after the May 2015 boat crisis when thousands of Bangladeshis and Rohingya were stranded at sea uh, because of a crackdown on on human ne- uh, human trafficking networks, um, and remember particularly a, a 12 or 13 year old girl who had treaded water for hours to survive before she was protected. So right now there are people at sea in very dire conditions. So uh, the region previously had many uh, agreements as to what they could do to prevent something like that happening, but unfortunately it's happening now. So it's very urgent that they be a- allowed to come ashore. Um, and you know, just ending on what uh, the refugees who I've spoken to recently have told me, um, they're scared about COVID-19. They're not getting proper information. Um, and they're experiencing fresh discrimination. Um, and at the same time, that they also say that this is not a time to wait for for justice and for addressing the root causes for their hopes, because they really do want to go back home to Myanmar if they can. So I'll just end with three quick uh, recommendations from that. First of all, it's, this is no time to add challenges. The uh, restrictions should be lifted, particularly on internet and, and mobile. Um, And then the main conclusion of our Refugees International Global Report is COVID-19 is not, uh, it does not respect borders, it does not discriminate. So any really truly efficient uh, response to the crisis also cannot discriminate, cannot forget those who are most vulnerable among them, uh, displaced persons. And then finally, we can't lose sight of the root causes. And so we call once again, call upon the State Department to determine this as genocide, and to put the proper kind of pressure on Myanmar uh, to address the root causes. Thank you.
2: Dan, thank you so much for your comments on that front. I'm especially pleased by your comments and highlighting of Refugee International's work in determining um, that they believe that genocide has in fact happened. That's something that the US Holocaust Memorial Museum that people on both sides of the aisle agree on and and think that the US government should take action on. So hopefully that's something that can happen in the near future. And I think, you know, as you mentioned COVID-19, there's no better time than the present to um, highlight those issues and to ensure that aid is getting to those that are most vulnerable like the Rohingya that are displaced in the camps. So thank you, Dan. Um, I'd now like to invite Christina Olney to join us. Um, She is the Director of Government Relations at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. Prior to joining VOC, Christina founded In Defense of Christians and she and I have actually interacted in the past through religious freedom and the work that we both do on that front. But today I'm especially excited to hear from her on what COVID-19 really means for individuals inside of China. So with that, I'll hand it over to Christina.
3: I think you're on mute. There we go. Thank you so much, Olivia and to the Heritage Foundation for hosting this event. I'm delighted to be here with you all to discuss this incredibly important uh, and timely topic. I'm going to focus my remarks on the Chinese Communist Party's response to COVID-19 and how this has impacted vulnerable populations in China uh, and in particular share about the plight of Uyghur Muslims and what we've heard uh, from Uyghur Muslims about what they've suffered under the internment and forced labor policies of the Chinese Communist Party. Since the coronavirus first emerged in China late last year, the Chinese Communist Party has intentionally covered up the deadly and contagious nature of this virus by launching a campaign of disinformation and repression. Uh, I commend you to uh, the recent report of the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation on the CCP's coronavirus cover-up, where we have a detailed timeline uh, showing the statements that were made not only by the CCP, but also by the WHO uh, about the coronavirus, contrasting that with the reality of what we saw actually happening in China. Uh, as we outline in that report, Chinese doctors in Wuhan who warned about the virus were arrested reprimanding reprimanded for spreading fake news and publicly humiliated activists and citizen journalists have been forcibly disappeared for reporting independently on the pandemic and while the ccp claimed victory over the virus in wuhan we saw images surface of overcrowded hospitals and stories of people being forcibly imprisoned inside their homes and unable to get basic necessities, including medicine. Xi Jinping is also taking advantage of this pandemic to continue his campaign of persecuting religious and ethnic minorities and denying basic political freedom uh, to those under the rule of Beijing. There are uh, one to two million Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps in the far west autonomous province of Xinjiang, who are being subjected to 21st century slavery and cultural genocide. Uh, I want to share with you all a bit about what one Uyghur Muslim woman who was able to escape uh, from one of these camps told us about the conditions of these camps. Meher Girl described being detained in a cell so small that 15 of the 60 women in the cell would have to stand while the others slept. The cell had no windows uh, and had cameras on every corner to monitor the every move of those detained in that cell. Uh, Those who couldn't recite Communist Party slogans would be deprived of nutrition. And in addition to experiencing this brainwashing, the so-called re-education, She was also physically tortured uh, and her children were forcibly removed from her. We are very concerned about the spread of the virus inside these camps and these incredibly inhumane conditions, but it's been very difficult to verify uh, because of China's strict controls on any information coming out of Xinjiang. But we know that China has sent thousands of Uyghur Muslims to factories across China uh, and has used this Uyghur slave labor to keep factories running in cases where Chinese workers were evacuated during the lockdowns. A photo taken in February that recently surfaced on the internet showed thousands of young Uyghurs all wearing face masks being dispatched to work in factories outside of their hometowns. Uh, And earlier this month, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute released a report estimating that at least 80,000 Uyghur Muslims have been moved from Xinjiang to work in factories in nine Chinese regions and provinces. We know that these vulnerable minorities, including Uyghur Muslims, Falun Gong practitioners and other prisoners of conscience, also continue to be targeted for the horrific practice of forced organ harvesting. Chinese authorities have continued to claim that all organ transplants are from voluntary donors, but we know from extensive research on this issue that the numbers simply don't add up. Uh, This was verified by an independent tribunal uh, that was convened last year by Sir Geoffrey Nice, a renowned expert in international criminal law, who formerly served as the lead prosecutor at the UN International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And after interviewing dozens of witnesses over the course of a year, the tribunal concluded that this practice has been committed on a significant scale in China for years. In Hong Kong, uh, we've seen uh, Chinese authorities take advantage of the slowdown of the remarkable protests that began uh, during the extradition movement last year, amid the pandemic, to launch a new wave of repression on the freedom of the Hong Kong people, with the recent arrest of 15 pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong, uh, including Martin Lee, the founder of Hong Kong's Democratic Party. Uh, Beijing is burying the one country, two systems model in which it promised uh, Hong Kong it would keep its freedom uh, autonomous from Beijing. And as Martin Lee recently said, the Hong Kong people now face two plagues from China, the coronavirus and attacks on our most basic human rights. I will end by saying that during the past 70 years of the CCP's rule in Beijing, it has killed tens of millions of its people and lied to the world about its crimes to maintain power. The same party that mowed down thousands of students in tanks in Tiananmen Square 31 years ago next month is still ruling in Beijing today, and the world must stop turning a blind eye to the fundamentally corrupt, and tyrannical nature of the Chinese Communist Party and hold them accountable for their crimes, including these human rights violations against these vulnerable populations in China. I look forward to continuing the discussion during the Q and A, thank you. Thank you so much, Christina. Thank you for highlighting in
2: particular, the various challenges that are faced by Uyghurs. We know that what they're facing is just unconscionable. And so it's so important to highlight their plight and also to keep a keen eye and sort of an ear to the ground in terms of how COVID-19 is uniquely affecting them. Um, And thank you also for for touching on Hong Kong. Um, So it's now my pleasure to invite Tung Min Kim to join us. Um, She is the sole correspondent for NK News. She has a long history of working on North Korean issues, and she and I share a mutual love for the North Korean people and a passion for countering the human rights violations that are perpetrated by the Kim regime. Um, Really quickly, before we turn to Jongmin, I just wanted to remind everybody about the Q&A function that is available. This is a discussion. And after Min is finished, we will turn to Q&A. You can submit those questions at any point in time at the right hand side of your screen. And we look forward to answering those questions. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Min. I
1: will have to start with how North
2: Korea um,
1: is telling the world and telling its citizens about their uh, their their responses to the COVID-19 situation and um, what we have to take into consideration when we are reading and listening to those uh, propaganda materials that come out of the state media. Um, starting in late January, when the pandemic started, they closed down all the borders and they started something called emergency quarantine situation. And they also started domestic propaganda telling its citizens that they're doing a good job um, doing quarantine measures in in the border areas and also in the local um, areas. And that they they claim that they are um, producing a lot of uh, personal protective equipment as well. And they um, canceled all the major events like the marathon. And they also cancelled all the receptions with the foreign leaders as well, and they blocked out um, tourism with uh, China um, along all those lines. Although they do um, argue that they are doing very strict quarantine measures, it's really hard to verify what they are saying. For example, they said that 382 foreigners were under quarantine and released, and that and that more than 20,000 North Koreans uh, went into medical observation and quarantine and that they are released. And the WHO um, is actually uh, repeating what North Korea and state media is saying, um, saying that almost 740 people were tested of coronavirus and that they were all tested negative, but there are so many counter evidence that there is um, against their claim that North Korea has no coronavirus cases, they are first of all sharing the border with China, where there were, um, which was the the area of first outbreak of coronavirus, and there are smugglers going in and out of the country to China, um, and also there were panic buyings in North Korea, especially in Pyongyang, and there were also unconfirmed reports, especially by Daily NK that there were um, irregular uh, symptoms that North Koreans were showing, like fever and pneumonia, especially around the border area. So there are plenty of counter evidences against what both the WHO and North Korea is saying. But they keep uh, North Korea is keep um, keeping their propaganda that they are um, holding this very strict quarantine measure, such as... Um, controlling the import-export items including the, um, the materials that are coming in from the international organizations that are trying to help North Korea to be better uh, prepared for the pandemic. Um, they did hold two Politburo meetings and the Supreme People's Assembly which is the rubber, rubber stamp Parliament of North Korea, they increased the budget for healthcare. Um, Defectors and the people who are hearing from in-country sources are telling us um, that actually the situation is very bad in North Korea. For example, um, one of our contributors to North um, NK News, Taeho Shim, um, shared us um, the experience he had in North Korea when it comes to North Korean healthcare system. Uh, North Korea claims that they have a free um, healthcare system for everybody, but Tail actually tells us that this is not true and that. Um, for the majority of North Koreans who live in a world, um, they are forced to work for nothing in return. Free medical care is something that they can't even imagine. And they say, he says that there's a very much lack of medical equipment and medicine in North Korean hospitals, and that patients must get, must get together everything required to treat them themselves, for example, buying the VIX vaccines from Changmadang, which is North Korean markets. And he says that how much money a patient has actually determines whether they live or die. Um, and then, and that the top 1% actually enjoys free healthcare, and maybe 20% can afford to pay a doctor. And um, although Taylor wasn't there during the COVID 19 situation, this actually explains a lot um, on what we have to do and what we have to take into consideration. Because, first of all, The reliability of the WHO data about zero cases, we have to doubt this. Um, Kim Jong-un was gone for more than two weeks. And um, although it seems that he's not dead, um, it is very likely that it was because of coronavirus situation, um, which also South Korean government kind of confirmed. Um, Also, they continuously asked the international government, intergovernmental organizations and non-governmental organizations that they need, um, protective suits and test kits, which sort of sort um, serves as a counter evidence that they do not have any um, uh, coronavirus cases in North Korea. But when we think about the zero cases um, argument, another possibility is that they don't have the um, test uh, the capacity to test enough people. They say that they have tested 740 people. That's but that's under One percent of the population, which is almost the lowest in in the world, and it compares a lot with South Korea, where um, it tracked a lot of patients and flattened the curve. Um, um, Thinking back of what Taylor said about how even hospitals need connections and money, if there are coronavirus cases in North Korea, alongside how North Korean regime is using um, the the prohibition of the freedom of movement as their feet. Uh, as um, as a reason for them arguing that North Korea has taken control of the coronavirus situation, um, things may be a lot worse than what we imagine right now and what we're hearing from the WHO. Uh, China and Russia uh, allegedly sent in the test kits into North Korea, but we do not know exactly how much um, those test kits were. Russia sent in 1,500, but China is not saying how many test kits they have sent in and 740 people tested even if they are all tested um it's a very small number and um it's very likely uh, defectors tell us that it's very likely that only the top one percent the the party cadre um they were probably the only people who were um, tested and especially just in pyongyang when it's likely that the border people in the border area they are the most vulnerable to the situation with the lack of freedom of movement. Um, The last point that I would mention is about the defectors. Um, Although in South Korea, the government has managed um, to take care of the situation very well, and they have been, uh, both the private um, entities and the government have been providing masks and care packages to the defectors who resettled in South Korea. Um, We heard from the Ministry of Unification and also the people who work with the people who are trying to defect from North Korea that the number of people who are um, taking refuge and leaving North Korea decreased considerably in the first quarter of uh, 2020 and the people who managed to defect told me that um, it's very likely that because of the very strict border shutdown due to coronavirus situation, um, people are not uh, managing to be able to get out of the country, even though um, it's very likely that they are not getting um, adequate healthcare inside North Korea. Um, so I will leave it at that, and I will take questions um, regarding the issue, but I would um, um, emphasize for the last time that if the, the reliability of the data coming from the um, WHO in North Korea, we have to doubt um, what they are saying. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Jongmin. I really appreciated your comments in particular about how uh, relative access to wealth and resources, and in particular, access to the market is sometimes a life or death situation for many North Koreans. And I think sometimes the analysis about the vital role that the market does play in North Korea in alleviating human rights concerns is something that sometimes gets left by the wayside. So I really appreciate you um, raising those issues. We are now going to open it up to question and answer. So I'll have the rest of the panelists join me. So, I'm going to take moderator's prerogative here, but before I do, I want to remind everybody, um, we've already been getting some questions coming in, but if you have any other questions, please feel free to go ahead and send those in. It should be on the right-hand side um, of your screen. So I will ask the first question, and this is directed to all of the panelists. Um, The question is, if there was one single thing that the U.S. could do to alleviate the suffering of the vulnerable populations that you addressed today, what would it be and why? And we'll start with Dan.
0: Great, thank you. Well, I think I, 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 the the low hanging fruit, um, something that could be done immediately to make a difference, is the one that uh, Rohingya refugees usually mention number one and number two when they talk to me, and that is lifting the restrictions on the the internet and mobile uh, networks in the camps in Bangladesh, uh, and that's something that the U.S. could push um, uh, Bangladesh to do, continuing to support the overall response, but pushing for unnecessary uh, added restrictions to be to be lifted. And then I'll cheat to say just one more that uh, in the long term, I'd, I'd reiterate the, um, the genocide designation because um, that can really the State Department giving a genocide designation, recognizing the crimes for what they are, um, will really bring attention on, on the Rohingya. And it's important to remember in the uh, context of COVID-19 and the threat in the camps, uh, the Rohingya would not be there um, in these numbers if uh, the genocide hadn't occurred and hadn't had the policies that uh, Myanmar has,
4: uh, has carried out.
3: Christina? Sure, in terms of addressing the uh, plight of uh, these vulnerable populations in China, uh, in particular of religious and ethnic minorities, Chinese officials responsible for these policies of persecution and repression must be sanctioned at the highest levels, uh, including Chen Guanggo, uh, the party secretary of Xinjiang, and the former party party secretary of Tibet. It is unconscionable that today in the 21st century, religious minorities are being detained and subjected to slave labor uh, because of their religious and ethnic identity. This is why China has been designated a country of particular concern by the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, meaning it is a country that commits systematic ongoing and egregious violations of religious freedom and actions must now be taken by the United States to correspond with that designation. And in particular, uh, there are vehicles such as the global Magnitsky sanctions that enables uh, individuals or entities to be sanctioned uh, when they have engaged in these kinds of human rights violations.
2: I 100% agree. Um, we have also advocated at Heritage for the sanctioning of Chen Guangzhou, not only for the role that he's played in undermining the rights and freedoms of we are Muslims, but also for the role that he played in in um, a lot of the subjugation that went on in Tibet. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you raised that issue, Christina. Um, in the long term, of course, the United
1: States will have to continue to take um, North Korea accountable for um, restricting the freedom of movement and also the concentration camps, which are uh, very vulnerable for this kind of pandemic, um, with a lot of people packed inside without um, adequate healthcare. But honestly, right now, as um, that's not the priority in my opinion, because it is pandemic doesn't uh, respect any borders or any political reasons, and um, United States will have to, even if it requires off the record meetings or off the record reach outs, um, North Korea lacks a lot of um, healthcare infrastructure should there are um, North Koreans who are affected by um, this pandemic. Like they don't have any um, adequate system for ICUs, the intensive cares. Um, so, I've heard that um, although Trump reached out to North Korea um, to help with the 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 cooperation and quarantine, North Korea rejected it because of possibly diplomatic reasons. Um, So not nothing um, on the record like that, but maybe if it's possible, United States would have to um, work hard to send in, if possible, the medical experts or any um, medical equipment that they can.
2: Yeah, thank you. So we're getting lots of great questions coming in. The first one I'm going to take is for Dan. It's from Michael Martin at CRS. And his question is, how many confirmed COVID-19 cases and deaths are there in the Cox's Bazar area? And how well prepared and supplied are the medical providers in the Rohingya refugee camps?
0: Great. Thank you for that question. Um, The The latest numbers I saw was around 20 confirmed cases in the Cox's Bazaar district. Um, I I believe that's probably gone up since I last saw it uh, a few days ago. The, um, so that's, you know, in the, in the district where the camps are, so nothing confirmed inside the camps yet, but, uh, the numbers overall in Bangladesh are going up. And and as I said, speaking to people on the ground, they expect if it's not already in the camps, that uh, it's only a matter of time in terms of preparation. I mean, it's a very, um, there's, there are tremendous efforts that are going on by uh, by UN agencies, NGOs, and the government of Bangladesh to a- increase isolation units, um, to get the word out. There's some 2,000 plus um, Rohingya and, and Bangladeshis who have been uh, put out into the camps to spread the word about, about what's what's going on, what to expect, what to look for. But again, that's restricted by those, um, you know, that's, you have a camp of some 900,000 people, and... Getting all that information out there is very difficult and the drawback of 80% of the uh, humanitarian workers going into the camps as even more of a challenge to it. So there, are, there's a lot of effort going on, but the challenge is tremendous. And so uh, that just brings me back to the point of why it's so important not to um, add unnecessary challenges at this time.
2: Thanks, Dan. Um, we have a question for Chungmin. This is coming from Nadira Court from the Global Center for Resp- the Responsibility to Protect. And um, the question is, do you have any information about the situation, especially as it relates to COVID-19 for detainees or individuals who are inside the political prison camps? Have we gotten any reports coming out um, that would indicate how this is affecting them?
1: Right now, the closest thing um, was what was reported actually by also Daily NK that there are um, uh, people who are showing similar symptoms to COVID-19 among the soldiers in North Korea. But um, right as of now, we are not getting any um, source reportings regarding concentration camps, but we can reasonably deduce that if these concentration camps um, are accessed by those people who are um, going in and out of the border areas, um, it's very likely that um, there is some sort of um, similar symptoms that are happening in North Korea uh, in those concentration camps. But as of now, we don't have um,
2: confirmed reportings of that. And we know that like in detention context, whether that's prisons here in the U.S. or, you know, in other areas that it does spread really quickly. So but of course, as in the situation in North Korea, it's always very difficult to get accurate information, especially in those sensitive areas like the political prison camps. So thanks for tackling that
1: tough exactly. question. And and, um, and and in that situation, social distancing is not something that they can do. Right. In those detention camps. So we will have to
2: um, keep a close eye on that. Thanks. That's absolutely right. This question is for Christina. And unfortunately, I don't know actually who the the asker was. But their question was, um, are you aware of any Uighur Muslims who are in detention that are being used as replacement workers for individuals in China who would have otherwise come down with COVID-19?
4: Oh, I think you're on mute.
3: There we go. Uh, Thank you for that question. Um, Again, uh, because of the media lockdown in Xinjiang, it is very difficult to verify the impact of COVID on the camps. But in terms of the issue of forced labor, uh, this is uh, something that uh, we know is happening. Uh, We've seen hundreds of Uyghur Muslims being rounded up and sent to factories across China And there have even been some reports that uh, these workers have been sent into Wuhan uh, to replace uh, Chinese workers that have evacuated due to the pandemic. Um, So uh, again, I mean, the numbers that we have seen uh, recently including the report from the uh, Australian Strategic Policy Institute of 80,000 Uighur Muslims who have been sent to factories Uh, for this slave labor is is simply shocking. And I would just add to that, uh, that um, despite a lot of the recent media attention on Xinjiang, that uh, this attention has not significantly changed uh, Chinese policy uh, on internment and uh, on the detention of these minorities. And uh, it Uh, Western consumers are directly implicated uh, in in some of these uh, companies that uh, are employing this slave labor. So I would add to my previous recommendation of sanctioning officials at the highest levels who are responsible for these policies, that the West also needs to look at the companies that are purchasing cotton and other uh, products from Xinjiang which are using slave labor. Yeah, I, I think it's crazy that in our
2: own US supply chains, we have goods that are produced with forced labor in Xinjiang and there have been cases that the US government has been investigating and looking into, but they continue to happen. and. That's just totally unacceptable. I I definitely agree with you, Christina. We're getting a, a slew of questions coming in for Tongmin about the North Korean situation. Um, one is coming in particular from Xi Jin Shen. Um, and his uh, question is how might the COVID-19 situation be affecting North Korean defectors who have already left the country but are in this in-between period, perhaps in China or in Southeast Asia? Have have their smuggling routes had to be changed? Um, How are they staying healthy? Those types of things. Actually a great question.
1: That was the one of the exact reasons why the number of defectors in the um, 2020 quarter one decreased um, year on year and also compared to quarter four. There might have been another factor, which was Chinese New Year, that may have decreased the number of defectors in quarter one. But compared to last year, it also decreased, which means that some of these people are stuck in China, um, not being able to move because of the situation. And also China has also taken a very strict um, lockdown in certain cities as well. So some defectors are likely stuck there. And also there's a, a second route, which goes through Southeast Asia, and um, because of the situation, um, first of all, these people who are already in China and Southeast Asia, um, they're unable to move because um, because of the increased uh, censorship and security, uh, the border security regarding these people. Second, um, it seems that it's likely that uh, many people who were actually intending or planning to defect, they couldn't. Um, because they are well aware of what's going on in China, and they are fearful of what what may happen to them because of the border security and also because of the coronavirus itself. So it's likely that these people are um, um, more fearful of the defecting procedure itself, so they're stuck in North Korea or they are also stuck in China and Southeast Asia as well.
2: That's great. Um, I have a question um, about the extent to which U.S. aid is is actually getting delivered to the individuals that are most in need. So this is a question for all of the panelists. Um, The U.S. has definitely increased the amount of aid that it's giving in the midst of Uh, COVID-19 and in terms of its response, in talking with other people who are either on the ground um, or who are observing this, what have they said are some of the most effective forms of aid and is the U.S. directing it in the right way? And I'll just kind of leave that open-ended to anyone who'd like to answer.
0: I can uh, jump in to start. Um, I think in the, you know, the Rohingya context, um there's been significant, you know, the US has long been a, a leader in, in providing aid. And uh right now the specific needs I think are um, you know, obviously there's the need for ventilators and things like that, but that's a, a much greater need across the world and and less likely to be realized in the um, in the camps. But in terms of uh the isolation units, the the personal protective equipment, especially for um for humanitarians who are, are addressing it, that's that's really the area. Um where sort of the the opposite of that question where it's most um not really getting where it needs to be one place i'd point and i focus my comments very much on rohingya in bangladesh but uh there's a lot of to worry about the rohingya who are still in uh rakhine state in myanmar um and there are conti- there have been long-standing um restrictions on the delivery of humanitarian aid and there are also uh internet restrictions uh in rakhine state so all of that is uh, is challenging the ability to get whatever aid is given to the people who need it.
2: That's really important to highlight, Dan, especially you know, we often think about the Rohingya refugees that are displaced um, in Bangladesh, but we forget about those who have been left behind, and as well as the other internally displaced populations inside of Burma that are in these IDP camps, where it is really hard to gain access um, to aid and assistance and even just like basic fundamental needs pre-COVID-19. So, yeah, thank you for raising that. Did anybody else have an answer to that question or should we move along? Ah, Chung. Right. Um. When it comes to aid
1: and verifications, North Korea is notoriously hard to check whether or not these aids are going to the right people. Um, the defectors that we have talked to m- m- some of them said that they have never heard of such thing as international organizations aid until they came to south korea which means that it's not reaching everybody in north korea um it's always very hard to verify when it comes to north korea and also uh, but um, despite that the the un sanctions exemptions of the it was very quick this time um ifrc doctors without borders and unicef they all um, asked for sanctions waiver and they got it, um, but uh, many of the cargo items were stuck in Tandong or at the import-export um, station in North Korea to make sure that um, they are not uh, they don't have any germs. But um, they and when we see North Korea in state media, when we see the TV, they are using um, not only the hazmat suits that they have produced, but also U.S. branded hazmat suits like 3M and Tyvek which means that they are willing to use um, those items that they have been given by uh, the United States or any uh, non-governmental organizations. But the problem is, it seems that it seems likely that these um, aid items are only used in Pyongyang and not in the uh,
2: regional provincial areas. Thank you for that. So we're coming into the final few minutes here. So I think this is going to be our last question. This is coming from Jessica Barbie at East Tennessee State University, and she asks, do you see interdisciplinary collaboration in global health between uh, governmental leaders, global health professionals, and social scientists becoming more common and more available after COVID-19? I'll take a stab at that. Um, I think that there will be a lot more interdisciplinary collaboration because I think that there's going to be, on the government side, a desire to see... You know, the U.S. government being better prepared and other governments all across the globe being better prepared to handle a crisis like COVID-19. And I think that's just naturally going to require greater interdisciplinary collaboration at the academic level, at the governmental level, and even, you know, amongst us who are working at various civil society organizations. So I think that you will see that becoming an increasing need um, going forward. Well, I, I wanna go ahead and thank all of our panelists for joining us here today. I'm so grateful for all of your wisdom and insight that you are able to lend um, to this discussion. Um, I will turn it back to you guys if you have any sort of final concluding remarks that you would like to make, but if not, then we can go ahead and close out the program. So I'll start with Dan if he wants to have any last minute remarks.
0: Yeah, thank you for for holding this. And I I think uh, all of the uh, comments sort of go around that same theme of, you know, as we're in this, this difficult time of uh, fighting coronavirus around the world. um, Again, it's important that to remember that, um, you know, the virus does not discriminate and we need to keep in mind uh, the world's most vulnerable and among them people who have been uh, displaced uh, in Asia and other parts of the world. So uh, thank you for the chance to raise this.
3: Christina, thank you so much again uh, for hosting this uh, event, and uh, thank you all for joining us to discuss this incredibly important topic. And I would just highlight that uh, during this time, when so many uh, religious and ethnic minorities are suffering, and uh, and uh, people suffering under authoritarian regimes that are having similar policies around the world, uh, I think we need to. Uh, remember that uh, it is democratic and free uh, countries that are able to um, give people the protections they need, and I think uh, we need to hold uh, countries like China that continue to engage in these systematic and ongoing violations of religious freedom and human rights to account.
2: And John Min.
3: Um, I
1: would like to emphasize that. When it comes to North Korea, Kim Jong-un is not the only thing that matters. And what actually matters is um, the people who are actually living in North Korea and under the regime. And I hope that the COVID-19 situation and this webinar it, um, itself as well to serve as an opportunity to think about the fundamental, fundamental problems that we see in North Korea when it comes to healthcare system. Thank you.
2: Well, thank you to everybody. I really uh, enjoyed Christina's final comments that remind us that having rights-based leadership is so critical um, in the midst of a pandemic like COVID-19. And so hopefully the US government Um, in partnership with so many other countries in the world that have a desire to see freedom flourish and abound, um, will be able to put their heads together in order to ensure that the vulnerable are not forgotten and that their voices are in fact heard during this time. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us. If you want to get in contact with any of the speakers, you'll see their contact information below on the screen. And we're just so grateful we could have this conversation with you today. Everyone have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, Olivia.